0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host, along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. We are a podcast that focuses on biblical studies and theology and the intersection between them. We also have another podcast called Biblical World. And um, we had a short series podcast as well that's still active um, called In Parallel. And that explores the relationship between poetry, uh, contemporary poetry and biblical poetry. So we'll have more to come on that in the future but uh we just did that initial short run and if you hadn't listened back through that i think you'll enjoy it um so in this episode i'll be talking to aaron sherwood about his commentary on the book of romans it's a big old commentary and so yeah i hope you find it interesting and if you have the will and the means of supporting us uh please do so we welcome that um You can go to onscript.study forward slash donate to do so. Uh, But most of all, thanks for listening and please share the word with your friends, family, and pets. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript podcast. I'm here with Dr. Aaron Sherwood. A good friend of mine who we went to Regent together, and recently we've been able to reconnect here in Vancouver. So, uh, Aaron, it's good to uh, have you on Onscript. It's good to see you after a long time. Yeah, so Aaron is a, um, a biblical scholar who did his PhD at the University of Durham, and he specializes in how Old Testament theology is the basis of Christianity and the New Testament, he uh, used to work as a professor, and he's now a stay-at-home dad who writes in his spare time, and write he does. Um, he's, uh, he's published a book called Paul and the Restoration of Humanity. Um, he's working on a theological novel about Samson right now, and he also wrote a major Romans commentary for Lexham Press, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So,
1: major by word count, at least.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh comes in at over, what is it, over 900, uh, 900 pages?
1: Yeah, with all the appendices and stuff like that. Yeah,
0: great. So, um, I'm excited to speak about Romans with you. And um, it's a book obviously of great interest to a lot of Christians for very different reasons sometimes. Um, a lot of people come with the book with particular theological agendas, agendi, I don't know how you even pluralize that, um, I think
1: you just invented a new word. We can go with it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, whether it be Calvinism or, you know, even like wanting to find a, a sort of confirmation of the new perspective on Paul in more recent scholarship. So, maybe we could just start out and maybe I'd be interested to hear what initially caught your imagination when it came to Romans such that you wanted to even write about it. So do you remember like what kind of caught your interest initially?
1: Yeah. And it's going to sound funny. My first disclaimer is the same thing I say in the preface of the book. I love Romans, but I think I've been in a lot of churches where people focus on it way too much and they sort of have a canon within a canon and Romans is at the top of that list. And I sort of had a soapbox where I wanted to tell people, yeah, Romans is cool, but stop paying so much attention to it. So I wanted to give my reading and explain what I think is really going on and how sometimes the things that people want there to be in Romans aren't in Romans. And if you know that, then it kind of clears your eyes and you're allowed to go look in other places to see what cool things are out there to discover. So for me, because I do, do a lot of Paul stuff, for me, what I'm really hoping and excited for someday is to do something with Ephesians. Because Romans is cool, but Ephesians is really where it's at. So I wanted to clear the ground a bit.
0: And, and giving your interest in sort of the the way that biblical, theological themes weave their way through the New Testament, I'm sure a lot of what you're doing as well is sort of getting, like, kind of riding the interest that exists already in Romans and pointing people to the rest of the canon too, right?
1: Yeah. And Paul does that because he quotes Roman, sorry, he quotes the scriptures in the Old Testament like a hundred times wow. in Romans. So it's dense. Mm-hmm. Even if I say there's other cool New New Testament things that are theologically interesting, that doesn't take away from how complex and dense Romans is and sophisticated it is. So, if you're interested in the Old Testament or Scripture or the um, Jewish background and linking that up with Romans, there's plenty of material to explore. Yeah. Great. Well, um, let's start
0: out by talking about the context of... The book of Romans, because you you talk about in the commentary how the context defines Paul's content in the book, and maybe you could just unpack what you mean. I'm not sure that's exactly how you put it, but that's the um, idea that you convey.
1: Romans is one of the most over-researched books ever, and if you look at the list of 50 or 60 or 70 commentaries that have ever been put out there, kind of line them up chronologically Less so now, but for a long time you'll find that people thought of Romans as sort of a theological textbook or source book. And more and more in the last 50 or 20 or 15 years, people have gotten away from that and started to say, you know what, there's some occasional things going on here too. And I really um, want to embrace that relatively newer idea and say, you know what, Paul is interested in A, talking to the Roman church church about some problems they're having and he wants to weigh in on those things pastorally for them and b he wants to come visit them for the first time ever and um get their help with the missionary trip that he's planning and this is sort of a letter of introduction because he knows some people that they know but they've never met him first first person to person then there's also some other issues that they know about paul's reputation that forces him to write a whole bunch of other stuff in romans that makes it as long as it is you
0: you talk about like the first 11 chapters really being uh, a kind of defense or apology of what Paul is, you know, Paul's own mission, and then the rest of the book being what he is really trying to do. So, maybe just talk about that dynamic and and how the context or occasion of the letter affects
1: the structure of it. Right. So, Jesus was Jewish, and Israel's scriptures are Jewish, and they're heritage of being God's people is Jewish. And Jesus coming, the Messiah, the Messiah is a Jewish idea. And the Christians in Rome know of this Paul guy from the people that know him. But what they've heard is everywhere that he goes, Jewish people don't listen to the gospel. And non-Jewish people get really excited and do listen to the gospel. And we see some of those kinds of things reported in the book of Acts, for example. And so they know good things about Paul, but they also are worried about some of that reputation about Paul. How come the Jewish scriptures about the Jewish Messiah and the Jewish gospel keep turning Jews off whenever Paul's involved? So, because this is a letter of introduction of sorts, he's got to explain to them, look, I'm not misrepresenting the gospel. I'm not misrepresenting Jesus. I'm not misrepresenting God. I believe the same gospel you believe, but the Jews aren't responding to it because of where they're at. And let me explain why that is and why that shouldn't turn you off to me. So in order to get them to listen to his pastoral input and to even consider his pitch about, hey, you want to partner together in a missions trip, he's got to make sure that they accept him and they're cool with him being on the same page as they are. And does he does he accept the premise that Jews aren't
0: responding? Because I'm thinking... You know, like, he also got mixed responses
1: from Jewish Yeah, it's not, it's not like 100% of Gentiles become Christians and 100% of Jews don't. But you do see, um, well, in the Gospels, you see Jesus facing a lot of institutional backlash. Jesus says, hi, I'm here representing God. And the Jewish institutions say, no, we're here representing God. And that's where the conflict comes in against Jesus. And some of that response of doubling down on, you know, we want to follow the God that is doing things the way we've always seen him do things before, not this newfangled God that's working in and through Jesus. Um, We see that sometimes, like I said, in Acts, and and they know of Paul by reputation as he's the apostle to the Gentiles, which is a word I don't like to use, but it means non-Jews. And he's having a lot of success with them How come it can't be both and? Like, what's Paul doing wrong? This sounds suspicious. So Paul knows that reputation's preceded him. It's not like there are no Jewish Christians. In fact, in Rome, there's both Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. But by and large, the Gentile world is getting excited about Israel's God, which they shouldn't because Israel is this obscure little people. But there's this God thing that's happening that's capturing the humanity in them. And Paul is one of the part, he's part of the spearhead of that. And how come it's not as successful among the people who produce Jesus mm. when Paul's involved? So mm. that's, that's a question.
0: Yeah, he's got a bit of a reputation. Yeah. And, and so, especially for people who haven't met him yet, that's an issue, right? Right. So is that why, like presumably this has been an issue in other places, but he has a prior relationship. Is that the difference of why he Decides. All right, I'm going to spell this out in 11 chapters. Of course, he wasn't thinking I that think way, so. but like you know, I'm I'm going going strong on this one.
1: <laughs> Sometimes um, people assume, hey, Romans is a really long letter, so it must be really important, and everybody knew Romans, and also Rome is a really important city, so all the Christians there must be really important, and also, well, Paul was a really well known guy, so he must know the Jewish people everywhere. But actually. Rome wasn't a church that Paul planted. He planted Galatians. He planted Thessalonians, you know, and so he had one-on-one relationships with them that preceded any letters he had later on had to write. Somebody else planted the church at Rome. You can have fun stories about whom, who could it have been and were they coming from Acts chapter two and going back to Rome. And then, and then, so they were already established and, um, even though we know Romans and we know Paul, living back then, the Christians in Rome didn't yet know Paul. And how much credence do you give, like, or
0: how much weight do you give to the particular circumstance of, like, I'm trying to remember, like, back to, like, the details of Jews being expelled from Rome and then coming back and, and all of that. Is, that. is that also, like, even apart from his reputation, his missionary endeavors, like, is that also, like, another reason why this needs to right. be...
1: Well, scholars debate that, of course, you know, any two scholars in a room will have three opinions among them. So um, the conventional wisdom that I think is in broad strokes correct is that, yeah, back, you know, 10 or or 12 years before Romans got written, there was the whole expulsion that you talk about. Then they come back in. It seems like before the expulsion, maybe it was, I'm just going to make up a number, two-thirds Jewish Christians and one-third not. But when they came back in, it's sort of one quarter Jewish Christians and three three quarters not. And so later on in the letter of Romans, Paul's going to address some of the tensions they're feeling. So that's part of the background generally that feeds into the kind of demographic makeup of the church there that actually rears its ugly head as sort of a congregational issue that they're wrestling with. And Paul wants to care for them and pastor them through that issue, among other issues. So... You know, we've talked about like 1 to 11 being uh,
0: focused on Paul kind of defending his mission. What happens rhetorically in the letter, do you think? Um, Like you, you put a lot of emphasis on the rhetorical or literary outline of the, the letter. So, maybe you could just kind of talk through what you found by taking that approach right. and then What happens when you shift the center of gravity to 12 to 15 instead of, I don't know, like 1 to 3 or 1 to 8 or something?
1: Right. That's like a couple questions in one. So, it's going to be a couple part answer. Um, I'll start by saying, this isn't true for everybody, but for me, I found it sort of an asset to be sort of mediocre at biblical languages. Because what it did for me is, okay, the first thing I do is I sit down and I translate the letter. And... I'm doing my best and because I'm not as skilled as I could be, it forces me to go slow. And every time there's a so that or a then or a therefore or a for or a because, I stop and I think really carefully about how does this because chunk of the sentence go with the previous chunk of the sentence? Is it above it or below it? Like if you're indenting it, is it indented or outdented? what's the main idea in the, so I did that for the whole letter and you do that for each paragraph and you come up with, Oh, this little sliver of the paragraph is the main idea of the paragraph. Mm-hmm. And then you, so that's like what we call discourse analysis. Is that? Yeah. What you, yeah. And it's a bit subjective. It's part art, part science. Yeah. It's a bit objective and a bit subjective. So you can quibble, but I did that for a paragraph and find out the main idea for the paragraph. And then I line up three paragraphs to each other and I figure out, which paragraph is the main idea and which of the other two or three paragraphs are the supporting ideas for the other paragraph. And by doing that gradually for the whole letter, I developed sort of a table of contents or a a little um, structure, a a map of how the whole thing is shaped.
0: So like if Paul was putting the, the letter on a three by five card, then like, here's his skeleton yeah. that he's hanging.
1: Yeah. And I'm sometimes a visual learner. So I included a lot of graphs and diagrams in this commentary that sort of, if you like to read the description of the diagram, you can. If you like to just look at the diagram, you can. And what I found was Paul starts off the letter saying, hi, I'm Paul. You're the Romans. Like he, greetings. That's how all Pauline letters start. Cause that's how all ancient letters start. And then he says, I'm praying for you. And I'm also thankful for you. Cause those are the things that you find at the beginning of the letter and right around chapter one verses 12 to 15 he starts introducing the idea i'd love to come and see you for the first time ever i've got some interest in preaching the gospel to everybody everywhere and i want to preach the gospel to you too which is interesting because we think about preaching as converting people but preaching the gospel means like you know discipling and theologizing with people even when they're already christians and he picks that back up. He says that in 115 and he picks that back up in 12.1 and 2. He says, So therefore, given everything he said in the intervening time, let me talk to you guys about what you're dealing with. Don't be conformed. Don't let the world push you into its mold. Instead, be transformed to be godlike and Jesus-like. And then he goes through a series of issues they're dealing with and talks into those issues. But He pauses in the middle, 116, through the end of chapter 11. Starts off in 116, everybody knows the famous, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And he's not talking about not being embarrassed to evangelize or do open air preaching. Mm -hmm. It's a shame, honor thing. It's a normal technical reference to that cultural dynamic of the day. Paul is saying, I'm not shamed by the gospel because i'm not doing it wrong i'm not misrepresenting it i'm not misrepresenting god i'm not misrepresenting jesus right so at the very end of what paul was saying i'm interested in sharing the gospel with you in 115 he pauses and he starts in romans 1 16 and 17 the part we all know i'm not ashamed of the gospel and people think oh he's just taking a left-hand turn now he's doing theology and he's talking about not being ashamed to, what, share the gospel in open-air preaching or something, or he's not embarrassed about the gospel. But that's a, sort of our modern take on the word ashamed. He's talking about the ancient um, cultural dynamic that everybody knew about of honor and shame. And Paul's saying, I'm not bringing shame to the gospel. I'm not misrepresenting misrep- it or God or Jesus, and you won't, be mis- you won't be ashamed by association if you connect with me. Because as those two verses finish, it's despite what you think you've heard about me and Jews not following the gospel, it is indeed God's power for salvation for everybody, all who believe, whether Jew or not Jew. And let me quote Habakkuk 2.4, because back then God was doing something weird that the ancient Israelites didn't understand And Habakkuk's message to them was, I'm God, I know what I'm doing, keep following me faithfully and let me work it out. And the people who were faithful to God will continue to follow him faithfully, even if they don't understand what's happening. And Paul says, you might understand how the Jews are reacting to my gospel, but I am faithfully preaching it. And for those of us who are faithfully following Jesus, even though we don't like what it looks like, in this segment of the population, we need to keep being faithful and not start infighting about the whole thing. So that's his thesis for one sixteen through the end of chapter 11. And he keeps coming back to that a few times. Well, he pauses actually in one eighteen through 3.20, he says, let me pause and explain why the gospel is so important. Because without the gospel, if we take the gospel out of the equation and just look at sort of the human condition, The human condition is, as a group, all of us, humanity, are sinful, and we're under God's eschatological judgment. That's what the word wrath means there. People get excited about, hmm, is God doing something with justice or predestination? No, it's just, there's going to be, like in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord someday, when there's eschatological judgment. And without the gospel, all of humanity is where they were in Genesis 3 waiting for that judgment to fall. And he talks about that for about two and a half chapters. And then in 321, for about 10 verses, and then again in chapter five, and then the last nine or 10 verses of chapter eight, Paul says, here's what the gospel is. And he lays it out, but he pauses in between each of those sort of bullet points. And he pauses to explain a detail or to answer a potential objection or to, to um to make sure that there's no confusion about anything that he said in the mean in those so if you look at those pieces of chapter three and chapter five and chapter eight as sort of a backbone and all of the stuff in between hanging down as a rib cage and that gives chapters one through eleven its own little shape it's sort of a self contained shape that does matter to everything that happens from chapter twelve forward but also is sort of self contained and if Paul already knew the church at Rome and he didn't have to explain himself, then you could almost imagine that Romans would be only about five or six chapters long, about the same size as Galatians. And he would have skipped all of that stuff. So it's a good thing that they didn't know him so that we as the church can benefit from him having to write it all down. (laughs) Yeah, depending on how you look at it.
0: Um, So... Okay, so you've got this uh, introduction to the gospel in 1 16, 17 and then in 3 and 5 and 8. And wh- what is Paul's gospel? Like, wh- how does he articulate that?
1: Well, in that first backbone piece, chapter 3, um, around 321 to 29 ish, 31 ish, Paul says, But now, God's salvation and his righteousness is being revealed in what happened with Jesus Christ. And everyone who has faith in that, everyone who trusts God in Jesus, trusts that Jesus really is who God says he is, and trusts that Jesus's life and ministry and resurrection really happen and really matter the way that they do, regardless of what ethnic background you came from, now you can belong to God's people, be the new around Jesus people, that's really awesome. And then chapter five, he picks up the thread. And what do we get out of that? We get reconciliation with God. We get hope. We get grace. Those are all the benefits of the gospel. And then he has to pause again and discuss some objections and some clarifying points. And when he comes back to the backbone part again, at the end of chapter eight, he says, so what does that mean for us? It means that we who are now no longer the old we we used to be, now we're like Jesus people. Like who we are is defined by our relationship with Jesus. We are totally reconciled with Jesus and irrevocably so. Nothing can come between that. Death, life, plagues, troubles, tribulations, um, angels or demons, heaven or hell, nothing can come between that. That is secure because we are in fully in that relationship with Jesus. And that is sort of in those three peak moments of the one through eleven chunk. That's sort of the peak moments of the. This is Paul's gospel, and the I think the Roman audience would have agreed with most of those things. They would have been like, "Yeah, that's the gospel that we founded our church on too." Paul's on the same page as us.
0: And uh, I, I'm just I'm hearing you talk about these peak moments and imagining like for some people listening. Let's say they're preaching Romans, uh, like a s- five- or six-week series on Romans. Given that skeletal structure, what are the texts that you would recommend people zero in on?
1: Only five or six? I have to <clears throat> choose yeah. five yeah. or six?
0: Like, uh, of course, some churches do like a you know a 52-week series on
1: Romans, but a lot of churches just yeah. they do a shorter series. I don't know if this would make the list of five or six. I do like... 1, 12 to 15, where Paul is sort of saying, before he gets sidetracked with all of the issues that they're going to have with him, Paul's sort of saying, you know, as a, a prophetic pastor, church planting person, this is what I'm excited about. I don't know if you want to devote one of your only weeks to just that, but I think it's a cool moment if you think about how it fits into the whole book, the whole letter. Then of course, uh, 3.21 to 26, the part where Paul says, but now, because he's just finished talking about from 118 to 320 why the gospel is needed, why apart from the gospel, humanity is in the human condition and all messed up, Genesis 3 area. And then Paul comes back to where he was, but now, and maybe tied into that you would say he's not ashamed of the gospel in chapter chapter 1, verse 16, because but now, in Christ Jesus, we are. And anybody who is in Christ Jesus has such and such going on. And I was most surprised when I was writing the commentary, one of the passages I was most pleasantly surprised by was chapter five, verses one to 11. Because, if I can flip there real quick. Therefore, what's therefore? It's everything up until then, but he's kind of picking up on the thread of thought from 321 to 26. If my discourse analysis is a key, is a clue. Therefore, what have we got? We have peace, we have shalom. With God through the Lord, and the Lord word there is a God word too. So there's, you know, Jesus is representing God in creation for us, through whom we have gained access. We have hope, we have reconciliation, and we have been justified. And I found that moment really cool, given the chapter three stuff, but now in chapter five, we have having been justified what do we got we got shalom we got hope and we got reconciliation and that is like saying the world is continuing on but we already live in god's kingdom and that's really cool um another chunk of stuff that i like is in um maybe chapter eight which is sort of a piece hanging off of a piece hanging off of a piece to make a point So it's not like the main idea, but in chapter eight, sort of verses one to 17-ish, Paul's just finished in chapter seven, illustrating what it looks like to be stuck in sin. And he asks, okay, but we're Jesus people. How do we get out of sin? And he says, by the Holy Spirit, not a philosophy, not a right doctrinal statement, but by an actual tangible um, historical, empirical experience that we've got of a relationship with Jesus's presence here with us, the resurrected Jesus in heaven has returned his presence to us. And that's the difference between us and people who just know that they need the gospel, but don't have it. We don't just continue living the way we used to. He says by the spirit, you're empowered to actually be little Jesus's and the life that you have kind of got nipped in the bud and you have a new life that's replaced it. And you're now, a mobile example of Jesus's life. So that's a really cool moment, even though it's a subordinate piece of a piece of a piece. And then when Paul does get into his speaking pastorally into their situation, some of the things they're dealing with um, end up being kind of theologically really rich and sophisticated. Paul in 14.1 through 15.6 is dealing with the question of the strong and the weak. Earlier I said scholars debate everything, and sometimes people say, no, nah, this isn't so much an ethnic thing, and I think the majority of scholars say, no, this is probably mostly an ethnic thing. You have the strong who are non-Jews who think that they don't have to follow Jewish stuff in as part of being Christians, and you have some of the Jews who said, this is how we always grew up, being Jewish, and we got to keep doing it to be good, good Jewish Christians, and... They're infighting a little bit and maybe some non-Jews weren't the other group and some Jews were in the other group, but that's not the point. The point is Paul comes together and he doesn't tell them who's right. He says, love each other. He says, accept each other as you are. He says, come together, not with necessarily the right exact doctrinal formulation, come together with unified worship because you see in the old Testament, when God restores God's people, when humanity becomes humanity again fully, what that looks like is them worshiping God who deserves the worship. And so Paul says, jump to the end and just do that. Worship God together with one voice. Be univocal in your worship, and then you'll be united in your identity. And all of these sort of debates and quibbles about whose version of Daily practices, the right version will fall by the wayside, and you'll end up acting like Jesus towards each other. That's another cool moment. Um, and my favorite moment in the theology of Romans is the very next paragraph, 15, 7 to 13, where I think we get a little keyhole glimpse in Romans into what Paul's big picture theology is. And the reason it's not more in Romans is because he's dealing with stuff. He's not writing Romans to share his view on that. You see that in other places in the Pauline letters, but he taps into it there a little bit because he says in summary, as he's wrapping up his instructions to their pastoral situation, he says in summary, in that paragraph 15, seven to 13, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you treat each other the way Jesus treated you be Jesus to each other. And he says, why he says, let me quote the old Testament four times in a row. And what he does is he quotes four times in the Old Testament where it's talking about someday when God fixes everything and God's end game comes to fruition, it's going to be God enthroned, creation restored, humanity restored, and humanity is as one single group who has shalom, again, that word, is worshiping God and glorifying God. And it's going to be not just the Old Testament Israelites or the Jewish people. It's going to be breaking down all those boundaries and reunifying all humanity, not just for the sake of reunification, as in hands across America or something, but as in going back to pre-Genesis 3 screwed up things, back when it was just humanity and Israel is going to, at least for the people who are God's people, Israel is going to have encompassed all of them together at once. And the, new, the, um, the scriptures, the Old Testament, look forward to that over and over and over. And Paul says, if you Romans do that now, then you, at least in your little pocket of the Roman Empire, will be an embodiment of that Old Testament expectation, the end game of God coming to fruition. And I think that theology in that paragraph drives or motivates all of the other instructions Paul gives out throughout the whole le- the rest of the letter.
0: Hmm. Now, um, talk about a lot of the theological puzzling over the Book of Romans has to do with nine to eleven and other places, uh, particularly around the theme of predestination or not. And um, you have something to say about that, so I'd just like you to maybe talk briefly about right. like w- whether you think Romans is addressing predestination. Um, or is critiquing it, or
1: whether that's the wrong question. How people use Romans as one of their fighting grounds to debate their sides back and forth with each other. My my long story short, my end position is predestination may be a thing in the New Testament or the Bible or in Paul, but it's not in Romans. So when people have that discussion with each other, they should leave Romans out of the discussion. Mm -hmm. There's usually, there's more than just these, but there's usually a couple specific spots. Usually people look at Romans 8, 28 to 30, and then they look at part or all of Romans 9 to 11. And I don't say the Arminians are right, predestination is wrong. I just take a careful look and follow sort of through the verses and I say, well, predestination isn't really what Paul's talking about or interested in here. So for one thing, you'll sort of mess up what he's saying if you try and force the conversation there to be about it. And secondly, you'll miss out on the cool things he's saying instead. So um, I'll just take the first one of eight twenty-eight to 30. That's at the end of this whole long paragraph. And it's this whole supporting point to the foregoing stuff, which is itself another paragraph supporting the previous paragraph. So it's not what Paul's talking about. It's sort of a detail that he's giving. And people debate about the sequence of, you know, are you atoned first? Or are you sanctified first? Or are you saved first? Or what order do those things happen in? And how does it work with
0: God? Like those he justified, he also those sanctified. Those he justified, he also it, sanctified. Yeah, what order sequence. is that happening
1: in? And yeah. we know that God things work. God works all things out for the good of those who love him. I think what's going on there, and if you can look in more detail in, in the commentary to see how it's spelled out. I think what's going on there is that Paul is just sort of giving a mishmash of wonderful things that God gives to his people. And in general, Paul says, look, God had the idea of having a Jesus people, God's people, restoration, humanity thing eventually. And he decided ahead of time what his goal for that people would be and how he would treat them and how he would be um, disposed to relating to them not necessarily listing a manifest or a catalog of each person that would be on the list. He was saying for that category of people, this is how God wants to respond to that people when they eventually come to be and all the wonderful things he wants to give them justification and sanctification and, you know, not in any particular order. Right.
0: Yeah. It is often
1: treated as like the particular sequence. Yeah. But if you look, it's in the paragraph of 818 through 30, it's a supporting point of a supporting point of a supporting point, so he's really just throwing a bunch of wonderful things out to illustrate the thing that was above it in the paragraph. what which is that thing that's so like
0: he's got he's got this mishmash of items there in at the end of eight, and like what's the sort of rhetorical context of
1: that list of items? He's talking about how the spirit is going to be there to help Christians cooperate with God in reforming creation and in restoring the humanity of God's people. Got it.
0: And um, you also had a discussion, we probably don't have time to get into it, but um, I thought it was helpful too, in talking about um, God has mercy on those he has mercy, he harden, or hardens those he hardens, he has mercy on those he has mercy, uh, which is another like text that's picked up for discussions about predestination. And and you were pointing out that this is coming out of the context of the Old Testament, where God hardens Pharaoh for his idolatrous and um, idolatrous behavior and his injustice. And so it's not just that that God arbitrarily hardens some people and arbitrarily has mercy on others, but like this is a very specific
1: occasion, insofar as people are Pharaoh like. That's the other spot that people get excited about having this debate is pieces of Romans 9 and 10. And I think that um, the way I, when we talk about backbones and ribs for the one sixteen through the end of chapter 11, I think all of 9 through 11 is a rib hanging off an objection. We've just ended 8.31 to 39, which I say is the last backbone chunk where Paul says, we Jesus people are in such a tight relationship with God and Jesus that nothing can overturn that. And that's where he finishes his backbone description of the gospel that he and the Romans should be on the same page about. And that just raises the same issue that was raised way back in 116. Then how come the Jewish people aren't responding to the Jewish gospel about the Jewish Messiah? Paul says, okay, finally, I'll get around to it. After I've laid all the groundwork, I can finally answer that question in chapters nine through 11. And after a short little introduction where Paul says, I'm as agonized about this as you all are. More, he says that in the first little five verses. Chapter nine spends its time talking about God is off the hook, and what's happening here is that it's hard to come up with the right term. Ethnic Israel, national Israel, the Jewish people, Jewish non-Christians, that group of people have not been rejected by God. They have rejected Jesus and the gospel about Jesus. And God is saying, okay, if that's your choice, then you can have your rejection. Then chapter 10 goes back in more detail, where Paul says, I'm anticipating the Roman audience asking me, well, what is it that they did exactly? And Paul spells out the nature and the object of their rejection. They've decided they like this version of God over here that fits more with their expectation. And that version of God over here with Jesus is doing something unexpected, and new, and radical from their perspective. So the chunks that you're talking about in chapter nine would first be nine six to thirteen, which is a paragraph where Paul throws out some stuff about Jacob and Esau, and Isaac and Ishmael, and it seems like God is picking the ones He wants and not picking the ones He doesn't want. But that's not what that paragraph's about. Paul's saying, first of all, Israel as an entity doesn't exist. Because they were some pre-existent nation, God called them into existence by having a relationship with them. Their relationship with God is what their national-ness even is predicated on. And that happens before they did anything. And God continues to faithfully let that keep happening even after the entire Old Testament saga of them rejecting him. Which is why at the end of that paragraph he cites Malachi. Where, yes, the language is sort of tying into the Genesis stuff. You know, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. But Malachi is talking about the nation of Israel I've remained lovingly committed to. And by contrast, their enemies, the nation of Edom, I have defended them. I've defended Israel against their national enemies. And this is after the entire Old Testament history of them rejecting God over and over and over. So that first paragraph is saying... Israel's very existence depends on their relationship with God and that continues because God is faithful even when they have tried to screw that relationship up over and over and over. So if anything is happening here, God isn't to blame. If there's an Israel to complain about them not being close to God, it's only because God made them in Israel in the first place. The second paragraph says in nine fourteen to 18, where you're talking about the Pharaoh stuff, okay, well, what's changed? God forgave Israel, and Israel over and over and over for the whole Old Testament. Why is not he forgiven them now? And Paul anticipates that question and says, okay, it's just like in the story of the Exodus. It's not just any old sin. It's not like they're just withholding worship or tithes, or they're treating each other badly, or their ethics are messed up. Or It's specifically an issue of idolatry. And there's a deep, deep logic part of the Old Testament, a deep thread and the woof and weave of the old testament that according to the theology of the whole deal humans are what they worship which is why genesis 1 and 2 says god made humanity in his image and when they keep worshiping him they keep being human if they they keep being like his image they keep looking god-ish the way they were designed to be if they replace that with a rock or a baseball bat or a political party or a movie Or a sculpture of another god, then because of the way humans are designed, they'll start to look like that thing instead. And the problem is only God is the living god, and only God is the thing that humans are supposed to image. So if they start imaging something else, they'll stop being really human as they were intended. So I was explaining earlier you can throw a rock, or you can break a glass, or you can smash a bat across a tree trunk. Because those are just inanimate objects. They don't have any agency. They don't have any rights. They don't have anything. You own them. And if humanity stops being humanity and becomes a thing instead, it's sort of at God's discretion what to do with that thing. God never arbitrarily takes humanity and rips their humanity away from them. He wants to relate to them. And then Genesis 3 happens. So, God... It seems like from everywhere else in scripture doesn't take nice God-fearing people and transform them into idolatrous god hating monsters. It's when they sever that humanity cord voluntarily, God says, okay, I'll let you have what you want. You'll get to be like the thing you're worshiping and suffer the consequences of all of that. If you're worshiping a deaf, dumb, mute idol, you're going to become deaf, dumb, mute, and unthinking and unfeeling. And in Exodus, you have Pharaoh in Egypt who are worshiping false idols and are dehumanizing themselves that way. And God says, okay, I'll let you become dehumanized just like you wanted. And then I'm going to judge your idols and I'm going to judge you along with your idols and you share the same fate together and go down into the sea. And in that whole process, I'm going to rescue my people and create them into a nation that has a relationship with me so I'm going to use it for my purposes. Not because God took Pharaoh, a nice guy, and took away his free will and changed him into a thing so that he could use him for his own mischievous plans, but because Pharaoh chose that, related to God by severing that relationship, severing that humanity, and God said, I can work with that, and he he made it work, and he brought Israel out. The problem is 17 chapters in the exact same book of Exodus Israel does the same thing with the golden calf on Sinai. They dehumanize themselves. They worship an idol. They stop being uncorrupted images of God and stop being fully human. Their humanity becomes eroded because of that. So is God going to say, I'm sick of this. I just got rid of Pharaoh. Now for doing the exact same thing, I'm going to get rid of Israel. And partly because of Moses' intercession, some amazing theological things that happen in those chapters of 34, Exodus 34, God relents and restores Israel's relationship with him. But also, Paul's pointing out the principle that when you're dealing with humans that have sort of become dehumanized through idolatry, that's a special case where God can decide for his own sort of grand purposes, is he going to let them go down with their idols or is he going to renew the relationship with them? And God has at his disposal Legitimately, those two options, because those people have sort of unpeopled themselves. And in the case of Israel in in Exodus, God restores their humanity. So is Paul talking about predestination in Romans 9 there? No, Paul is referencing the common Old Testament story that all Christians at that time knew about how when you're dealing with idolaters, when you've subjected yourself to God's judgment and sort of like plans and purposes by committing idolatry, then God can either confirm you in your hardening, or he can have mercy in restoring your humanity and your relationship. And now in the first century, when the Jews, when the Israelite people, the ethnic Israelite people are acting like Pharaoh, ironically, who they were freed from all those generations ago, God can say, okay, you want to reject me, you want to follow a version of God you like better as your idol, I'll let you be confirmed in that choice. And ironically, I'm going to use you to bless the non-Jews, the nations, by doing that. Because now, just like I showed mercy to the idolatrous Israelites in Exodus, I'm going to use you to show mercy to the idolatrous non-Jews and nations now in the first century Roman Empire.
0: Yeah, there's a a lot there. I have like 20 follow-up questions, but I... um, But the point is,
1: predestination never came up in that conversation. Yeah. It's just not there.
0: You're right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, thinking about the Old Testament background really helps to clarify how irrelevant the doctrine of predestination is to that discussion.
1: Yeah, that particular paragraph of Romans. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm wondering if you could just touch briefly, I thought it was an interesting interpretation of the like creation awaiting the revelation of the sons of God in Romans 8. Yeah. And uh, If you could talk about the Old Testament background there, which is obviously a big part of your method is New Testament use of the Old.
1: This is kind of a footnote. The thing you're talking about is in Romans 8. Yeah, Romans eight, eighteen and 19. And I consider 18 through 30 a paragraph or a thought unit or a pericope. So the main idea in that whole... What is that? Many verse pericope would be creation's beginning restored. God is doing it. God is doing it through you guys, Roman audience, who are Christians and Jesus people. And this is really exciting. And he, he says that at the beginning of the paragraph um, our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. This is Paul's diplomacy. He's including him with his audience. He's trying to get on their good side. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be re- revealed. And this would be maybe a fun little presentation or journal article, something I noticed almost as a footnote, but I haven't followed up, but I haven't seen anybody else notice it anywhere else. And this phrase, sons of God, is very rare in the entire Old Testament tradition, the scriptures, and in anywhere in the Second Temple Jewish literature. You see variations on it like a son of God or sons of the most high in certain cases where it's talking about certain theological ideas but the phrase sons of god seems to be reserved for just a few spots there's a spot in job where it's talking about some sort of spiritual beings or angels and there's a spot in genesis 6 1-4 at the beginning of the flood where the sons of god screw up everything and it's debated but the idea is there's some sort of spiritual beings that are crossing transgressing creational boundaries by having interrelationships with humans. Sons of God should be sticking with their own kind, just like humans should be sticking with their own kind, like it says in Genesis 1 and 2. And when they transgress that boundary, it throws everything out of whack. All of the creation falls apart. It all comes tumbling down into pieces and you get the flood narrative of chapter six to nine. So the sons of God messed it all up and it almost completely got screwed up and stopped and God had to reset and start again. And I thought that this phrase, sons of God, is Paul, with a little wink and a nod, putting in there the idea that when creation is restored, which is a big picture idea from the Old Testament all over the place, he threw in the idea that we are now the sons of God. And so just like there was a time in Genesis 6 where the sons of God screwed up creation, now we're going to have a new draft of the sons of God who are going to fix the creation that the sons of God screwed up the first time. So it's like a little um, throw-in phrase for those paying attention. I think that maybe Paul was tracking back to that little moment in Genesis.
0: Um, A a lot of people coming to commentary on Romans are going to be curious about your take on the new new perspective on Paul. So I'm just wondering, like, what role that played in your commentary, if you could just give a brief kind of take
1: on that. That's easy to do because my interaction with the new perspective was sort of a brief take in the commentary, too. If you go back to like 1970s, 1980s, the new perspective was very timely in correcting a problem that maybe you had with Pauline scholarship or Roman scholarship, going back to maybe, say, blame it on Luther. There was a long tradition of thinking that Christianity is about grace and that Judaism is about works and legalism, and maybe Protestantism is about grace, and for Luther, Roman Catholicism is about works and legalism. And then the new perspective comes along and says, you know what, non-Christian Jews thought that being Jewish was a grace. They thought that having that Jewish heritage and having God communicated to them and giving them the Torah, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, that was wonderful, a gift. That was a grace. And so the question isn't, is Judaism a grace and Christianity not a grace or vice versa? It's really, okay, Now that jesus comes how do you relate to god and access god's grace and the debate is an inter-jewish debate the jesus following people including jews so you get god's grace and relate to him in jesus and the non-christian jews say no we still have god's grace by relating to god in the old pre-jesus way and that's the debate they're having and that's what the new perspective corrected and the new perspective tends to use the metaphor of inside and outside membership of being members that are inside or being non-members that are outside people of God and the Christians and the non-Christian Jews each had their definition of what the people of God was and how you were inside or outside. And that's what the New Perspective likes to phrase. That's how the New Perspective likes to phrase things. I think that was a helpful corrective given sort of what people thought the conversation was before. But what the New Perspective inadvertently does you could say is they turn things overly into a social a sociology thing and so being christian is not about being empowered by the spirit having a relationship with jesus having a relationship with god in jesus it's mostly just about which social group you belong to and how you religiously identify yourself within society or within your culture and um, the new perspective inadvertently kind of says, okay, Jewish people say, say that you are sociologically presenting yourself to everybody around the, as Jews, whereas Christians are sociologically presenting themselves as everybody to everybody around them as being inside the Jesus people relating to God in connection with Jesus. And it's not a social reality for Paul. It's fundamentally a theological and spiritual relationship and reality for Paul. So I think that really got de-emphasized and in some ways devalued by the obsessive language of the new perspective. So from that early point on in the commentary where I mention this is what the new perspective did that was very helpful, but then this is the kind of unhelpful emphasis they introduced instead. I don't use inside-outside language anymore. I start talking about participation in the heritage of God's people and being in relationship with God and connection in relationship, having the identity that's defined by that relationship with Jesus and an identity that is making you part of God's community of people.
0: Yeah. Aaron, um, there's a a lot more we could probably unpack, of course, in this uh, given that you've written a 900 page commentary on, on this Uh, rich and wonderful book. Um, But I will point our readers to uh, check out your Lexham Press commentary on Romans. And thanks so much for taking the time to hang out and talk about what
1: you've done. Thanks for inviting me. This is fun.
0: You've been listening to Onscript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.